Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Episode 39, Second Unit. Dear little wildflower, the letter began. It was one of the first of many letters Paul J. Jensen would write in his role as secretary of the building committee for Fourth Church of Christ Scientist Seattle. This friendly letter was an invitation to a meeting on May 10th, 1922 at the Empire Building to launch the work on the second unit. The letter was to architect George Foote Dunham, but it seems there was already an expectation that his wife, Violet, would be the one to actually receive the letter and take action. Although Mr. Jensen's later letters would address her more formally as Mrs. Dunham, there would always be a cheerful tone of familiarity and camaraderie in their frequent correspondence, even during this period of the most intense pressure, when so many critical elements needed to come together quickly. During the summer of 1922, as the Fourth Church Second Unit construction was ramping up, the architect was, of necessity, on extended travels in the East. Dunham had been awarded the design for Sixth Church of Christ Scientist St. Louis, and he had already committed to being there for the start of the project. It was not certain when he would return. He left Violet in charge of the Fourth Church Seattle project. Back in the fall of 1921, Around the time when the Boston litigation was finally resolved, the membership of Fourth Church had told the building committee to get busy. As far as the membership was concerned, the committee already existed, despite having been inactive for several years, and it was time to start working again. The church had paid off the debt on the first unit, and the members were ready to move forward with the second unit. The membership wanted to see a final design, a cost estimate, and a plan for financing the project. But most of all, they wanted to see a completed church edifice. William K. Sheldon relayed the directive to get busy to Dunham in a letter but it was not so easy to instantly start up this major construction project. First of all, the architect was on extended travels again, but the building committee was not quite ready to start work either. They needed a new chair. Mr. Sheldon had taken the lead on the building work after the former chair, Frederick S. Sylvester, was elected first reader. Even though the first unit construction was done, Mr. Sheldon had had to deal with quite a lot of building issues. Even after the congregation moved services into the daylight basement in March 1917, there were ongoing issues with the construction. 
especially leaks, seepage, and dampness. The problems were due primarily to the fact that the building, being unfinished, was not fully waterproofed. The exterior walls had only a temporary covering of a swabbing of hot asphalt instead of its intended terracotta tiles. The concrete walls absorbed rain, as did the concrete floor. Sheldon had overseen resolution of these issues, but now his work as a Christian science practitioner and teacher demanded his full attention. As much as he had valued his involvement on the building committee since his appointment in 1915, after making the initial effort to get the construction project going again, he tendered his resignation. He asked for the pardon of the members for insisting that they accept it. There were, after all, many other highly qualified people among the membership. By early May 1922, the building committee had a new chair, Charles T. Hudson. Mr. Hudson had proved himself highly capable in everything he did throughout his career in law. Originally from Wisconsin, after graduating from the University of Wisconsin Law School, he had begun his legal practice in the Wild West, in Pasco, Washington, when it was all dust and had no paint, and the only place in town to bathe was a zinc tub by the railroad pump house. His first law office was in a tiny shack. The rough-and-ready citizens often brought guns to meetings, and he, at times, had to travel 40 miles by horseback at night to conduct his business. The remote location of his start in law did not hinder the advancement of his career, however. From his modest private practice in wheat country, he became county prosecutor, then entered the Washington State Legislature as a senator. At the time, he was the youngest person ever elected to the state senate. When President Theodore Roosevelt visited Pasco, Hudson was at the top of the list of the welcoming committee and when a new assistant United States attorney position was created for the Western District, Hudson was the first one appointed. Hudson moved to Seattle in 1907 after taking this federal prosecutor position. It may have been shortly after his resignation from that position five years later that he came into Christian science. His wife died after a lingering illness, and he, now solely responsible for their two young daughters, also had a serious health problem. His bronchial asthma was so severe that after exhausting all known remedies, his physicians advised him to leave Seattle and try other climates. Instead, he tried Christian science and was completely healed within a few weeks. Hudson's public debut as a Christian scientist coincided with the 4th Church 1st Unit Building Project. The Seattle Times took notice when the former Assistant United States Attorney 
began introducing Christian science lectures in Seattle. Happiness, however interpreted, is the goal sought by all, Hudson had told the audience of more than 5,000 people at the George Shaw Cook Lecture at the Arena on Sunday, September 10, 1916. As reported in the Christian Science Sentinel, Hudson's introduction continued, For hundreds of years, theory upon theory for the amelioration of the sufferings of the human race have been advanced, and in practical operation, they have all failed to accomplish the result sought. Then Christian science was discovered, an agency found so potent for good that in the short space of 50 years, it has extended to all the world, and its followers are numbered in the millions. When its teachings are accepted, understood, and demonstrated, inharmony and discord disappear, and happiness is attained. Hudson had found the happiness he was seeking. And although he continued his career in law and private practice, he began also working for the cause of Christian science, actively and openly, as did his brother, Roy J. Hudson, who was head of a fuel company and would soon help create a new paper pulp mill in Edmonds. When Charles Hudson was appointed to the building committee, Roy had just completed a term as first reader at First Church. A decade hence, Charles would be first reader at Fourth Church. Starting in the spring of 1922, when the Fourth Church building committee began to get busy, Hudson was in charge of this critically important work. He was especially well-qualified to organize and run the meetings because of his experience in the state legislature and having served as chair for at least one political convention. His church committee meetings were run formally, efficiently, and effectively. There were other changes for the reactivated building committee. Miss Jessie Estep continued on the committee but resigned from her role as secretary. The new secretary, Paul J. Jensen, was a secretary by profession. An immigrant from Norway, he had become clerk at one of the finest hotels in Seattle, the Fry Hotel on Yesler Way, and also managing secretary for a statewide organization for the restaurant industry. Also on the building committee team, they had Christian Science practitioner Emma Augusta Hawkins, who had two years' experience on the First Church Building Committee. Others involved for at least part of the building process included Dr. Walter Paget, the dentist, who had completed his term as first reader, Fred Brubaker, a barber who ran the barbershop in the New Washington Hotel at Second and Stewart. Hiram K. Ball, an Alaska gold rush miner who was now a real estate agent. Ben S. Booth, an embalmer who had a successful undertaking business. Mr. Russell and Mrs. Pratt. At the building committee meeting on May 10, 1922, at the Empire Building, 
George Dunham was able to attend before heading east. Mr. Dunham's presence must have been reassuring to the newly activated committee. They officially authorized him for the project. There had been enough concern about working with an out-of-state architect that they had consulted with Robert DeCoux, former chair of the Third Church Building Committee, about his experience working remotely with Dunham. On this fourth church project, Dunham would be more consistent in his visits to the building site. He would visit Seattle about once a month, except when he was traveling in the east. Dunham would also be in much closer communication with Neil MacDonald, the construction contractor, who had previously worked with Dunham on the fourth church first unit as well as the third church edifice. McDonald's construction crew was just then finishing up the work on Third Church. Fourth Church would get a better crew and a better price if they could start work on July 5th. McDonald needed several working blueprints of the final design as soon as possible so he could provide a cost estimate in time for the upcoming membership meeting on June 12th. In discussing the project with Dunham that day, the committee decided to make some design changes. Most significantly, they chose to go with steel roof trusses instead of wood. The cost was significantly more, but it would make a stronger building. This meant a major revision of the plans that Mr. Dunham could not be directly involved in because of his travels. It would be up to Mrs. Dunham to oversee the work. Violet, the dear little wildflower. Violet expressed a spirit of sweetness and modesty. But both her architect husband and the building committee seemed to have complete confidence that she could do the needed work for this largest and most expensive of all the Christian science churches in Seattle. That Violet was a Christian scientist was apparent from phrases used in her letters to the building committee. She cheered the unity expressed by the members, expected the work to progress harmoniously, and remarked that the beautiful edifice is to be brought into expression. Violet grew up in Stockton, California, and attended Mills College, a women's college in Oakland. Always a busy career woman, Violet started out as a secretary for her lawyer father, and within a few years she was working for a judge of the United States Circuit Court of Appeals in Portland, Oregon. She met George Dunham around 1914, just a few years after he moved to Portland from Chicago and started his own architecture business. The two married in 1915 on Valentine's Day. Around the time she met George, Violet testified of being healed of chronic stomach and bowel trouble, as well as a lifelong throat trouble through the work of a Christian science practitioner. Then, after doing her own year-long study of Mary Baker Eddy's textbook, Violet testified about overcoming the need to wear glasses, as well as the instantaneous healing she had experienced of a stubborn physical ailment, proving the effectiveness 
of steady, persistent effort. By the time Violet was put in charge of the fourth church building project, she was a dedicated Christian scientist, and her communications suggest that part of the work she did to support the fourth church design project was spiritual, prayerful. Violet was known for her boundless energy. One associate later described Violet as the original go-girl, sharing how her infectious enthusiasm makes all her activities successful. She would need that energy for the launch of the Fourth Church Project, guiding the building committee in these critical early months of the project. When faced with choices, the building committee often went with the better and more costly option. Besides choosing steel trusses over wood, they chose full terracotta exterior tiling over brick with terracotta trim. And they chose to put terracotta tile on all four sides of the building instead of finishing with painted stucco on the two less visible sides as Third Church had done. They chose index granite front steps over concrete. They chose copper roofing for the dome over tin. They even splurged on hot water for the sinks in the readers' bathrooms and two drinking fountains in the hall. So many extras added tens of thousands of dollars to the cost of the project. The one cost-cutting decision they made was to not put two electric fireplaces in the foyer as the architect had originally planned. The building was going to be very expensive, and they had nowhere near the amount needed in their building fund. They needed to raise $30,000 to qualify for a mortgage for $75,000 from Seattle Title and Trust Company. But this would only get the project started. They would need more funds later. At the June 12th membership meeting, through a proxy vote, the members approved the project with Dunham as architect and McDonald as contractor. The committee was joyfully on its way in the good work of completing its building. They prepared a statement to be read by their first reader at church services, requesting more generous contributions from the congregation. Jensen notified Mrs. Dunham that the project was approved and that the committee wanted to proceed with full speed ahead. Violet had already done a preliminary design of the steel trusses, but had been holding off on final design work for the membership approval. Now that they had approval, Violet was under pressure to produce the revised design. Please hurry plans! McDonald at a standstill! were the only words in Jensen's June 28th letter to the architect's office. McDonald's crew finished the third church project earlier than expected, and they had already moved to the 8th and Seneca job site. McDonald needed the plans for final cost estimation. Violet sent two sets of preliminary plans for McDonald to work with 
while she was completing the design revisions. There were 27 steel trusses to design. Violet supervised two engineers and two draftsmen who were working and checking calculations as fast as they could. She even had them working, against their objections, on Monday, July 3rd, what might have otherwise been a four-day holiday weekend. She tried to help them as best she could. Meanwhile, she was taking phone calls from steel contractors competing to be the suppliers. There was a little tussle over the steel contractors, because MacDonald had his own ideas about the best steel supplier. Hudson ended up having a long-distance telephone conversation with George. This brief quarrel over cost, quality, reliability of delivery, and authority over subcontractors seemed to shake Violet's self-confidence a bit. I'm doing all I can to get Mr. Dunham back. He is doing all he can, too, Violet wrote to the building committee. But despite the intense pressure, Violet completed the work and sent the final plans to Seattle on July 3rd, right on schedule for the originally planned July 5th start date. As soon as the construction work began, Fourth Church moved its services to the Wilkes Theater building at Fifth Avenue and Pine Street. The Wilkes Theater, built in 1909, was a live theater playhouse that also showed movies. The managers of the Wilkes Theater had announced plans for a major remodel of the 1,600-seat theater to turn it into a modern motion picture palace with new seats and curtains and a blaze of electric lights outside on Fifth Avenue. But these plans were not fulfilled. Instead, the theater became a place for civic meetings, political rallies, and on Sundays and Wednesdays, a Christian science church. Church representatives had searched the city for an alternative meeting place, and this was the best they could find. Fourth Church announced its temporary move with a large display advertisement in the Seattle Times. Then they held a Christian science lecture by former medical professional Dr. John M. Tutt at their Wilkes Theater location. At a regular weekly building committee meeting that summer, Hudson shared that he had been approached by two labor union managers who wanted to discuss the union affiliation of the workers on the Fourth Church Building Project. They were concerned that some of the workers were not members of any union. This issue was a contentious, politically polarizing one. Seattle had strong labor unions and a history of unions showing their strength through strikes and other forms of activism. Just a few years earlier, in 1919, there had been a massive general strike involving more than 65,000 workers that had brought Seattle to a standstill for five days. The event had threatened to turn violent, even revolutionary, establishing a reputation for Seattle as a stronghold of socialist ideology, similar to what triggered the communist revolution in Russia in 1917. 
In subsequent years in Seattle, tensions continued between the working class and large business owners. Having been so involved in politics, and not necessarily on the side of the unions, Hudson would surely have seen this as a highly sensitive issue for this large, diverse congregation, and also for his new career in private law practice. At the committee meeting, Hudson pointed out that, according to their construction contract, decisions on hiring and wages were entirely the responsibility of Neil MacDonald. Anyone concerned about union rules needed to talk to Mr. MacDonald. To prove this point beyond any doubt, the chairman was about to read the contract out loud to the committee when MacDonald came into the room. Neil MacDonald had started coming to the weekly building committee meetings to give a progress report and discuss issues with the committee. He was asked for his version of the labor situation as it concerned the church. At this, MacDonald merely smiled. He assured the committee that all the workers were union except for the common day laborers, and they were receiving union-scale wages. With the exception of those two union managers, everyone is satisfied. MacDonald said, Leave it to me. That was the end of the issue. By mid-July, MacDonald was discussing the concrete pour for the auditorium floor with the building committee. It was still many weeks ahead, but some important decisions were best made first. Heating system design and the type of organ needed to be known so the air ducts could be framed into the concrete floor. There were still questions about plumbing and wiring needing to be resolved. To assist the project, Violet was in communication with the building committee, the architect, the contractor, the engineers, and the city building department. She made sure everyone involved had the plans, the specifications, and the recommendations they needed. Violet sent a Portland heating engineer up to the Seattle building site to consult with McDonald. She assured the committee that this building would have good ventilation. They were checking over the shop drawings from the steel contractor and planning out the placement details of the terracotta exterior tiles. We feel that the work is progressing nicely and without any delays, Violet reported. The most critical parts of the design were done on schedule as expected. The architect's office had much smoother communications and working relationship with Fourth Church than they had had with Third Church. Violet had successfully overseen the launch of the second unit project. But the building committee wanted to hear from the architect himself. He had been gone longer than expected, two full months. Where is my little friend, George Foote? I miss his smiling countenance, came a friendly letter, unofficially, to Violet mid-July. Ten days later, the question was repeated more officially 
and with a tone less friendly. It was relayed that Mr. Hudson needed to reach Mr. Dunham directly, urgently. Unfortunately, it was difficult to know exactly where he was. Violet had received a wire from him that he was headed back by train via the Canadian route. He was expected to arrive in Seattle at the Fry Hotel next Sunday, July 30th. That meant he could meet with the building committee on Monday. Violet wrote back apologetically to Jensen. He has been detained much against his desire, but all things work out, and we will surely be glad to have him home again. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.